Lord, we have been proclaiming in song that Christ is enough for us. We have been declaring in song that all we need is Christ. And Lord, we pray and ask now that you would, by your word, deepen those confessions. Those of us who love Christ and know Christ, we mean it when we say all we have is Christ. We mean it when we say Christ is enough for us, but we live in a world that constantly assaults those confessions. And we are weak and frail. We are but creatures, dust into whom you breathe life. And sometimes, Lord, we feel ourselves distracted from those confessions. And we need reminders. And so would you take your word this morning, which taught those truths even before the songwriter wrote them. And would you assure us that Christ is enough? That if we have only Christ in this world, then we have everything in the universe. Oh God, fasten our hearts to Christ. Make him our great treasure and delight. Light every heart on fire with joy in the Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been memorizing Colossians together, and uh, I've got a volunteer, I think, for Colossians 2, 1 to 7. Brother James, welcome James. We encourage James this morning. Amen, 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 amen. Amen. Praise be to the Lord. Praise be to the Lord. The, the ancient Egyptian mystery system personified it as one of their gods. The Greek philosophers thought of it as one of the highest virtues and the virtue from which all others came. The Greeks believed uh, that this virtue, personified as Athena, sprung from the mind of Zeus. They created an entire field of learning and human study for it called philosophy. The ancient Romans also valued this virtue they believed this virtue came from the head of Jupiter, and they represented it as an owl. This is why we think of owls even today representing it. Roman Catholicism teaches that a form of it is one of four cardinal or chief virtues. And among the Inuit people, better known as Eskimos, developing this virtue was one of the main aims of education. Since humanity learned to stand, we've been on a quest to gain this virtue. It is the crown jewel of old age. Those who lack it disgrace themselves. Educational systems are built to produce it. Every one of us will feel our need for it frequently throughout life. What are we talking about? Wisdom. Life seems hardwired to require wisdom. Without wisdom, our lives are often wasted. But with wisdom, we find joy, satisfaction, productivity and success, and goodness. But where do we find wisdom? Is it in the musings of Greek philosophers? Is it in the occult systems of ancient Egypt? Is it in the classroom of modern education? 
Where do we find it? How do we gain it? And is a Christian view of wisdom any different from all the other views that I've mentioned? The main point for the sermon this morning from Colossians 2 verses 1 to 7 might be put this way. God has made Jesus Christ to be the highest wisdom for his people. I take that from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. Or you might put it this way, in Jesus Christ, we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's from Colossians 2, verse 3. And so if you're taking notes this morning, here's what I want to suggest to us as an outline for the sermon. Those who wish to be wise should commit themselves to three things. Those who wish to be wise should commit themselves to three things. To reach for Christ as your treasure, verses 1 to 3 of Colossians 2. To remain with Christ as your protection, verses 4 and 5, Colossians 2. And to walk in Christ as your Lord. To reach for Christ as your treasure, to remain in Christ as your protection, and to walk with or in Christ as your Lord. Colossians 2, 1 to 7 tells us this is how we gain wisdom and how we benefit from it. So let's take that first thing. Reach for Christ as your treasure. Colossians 2, verses 1 to 3. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that lay out a sea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach the riches of full assurance, to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Last week we thought about the pastor's job description. I gave you four bullet points on that description. This week, in some ways, verse 1 continues that job description, and here's the, here's the fifth bullet point. The pastor should struggle for the full assurance of his people. The pastor should struggle for the full assurance of his people. That's what Paul does there. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all those who've not seen me face to face. The remarkable thing about this text is that Paul has never visited Colossae. He's never visited the Colossians. He doesn't know them personally. And yet, having never met them, he struggles in loving concern for the Colossian church. Teaches us something, doesn't it? We're not in competitions with other churches. We're not to be critical of other churches. We are to be caring and concerned about the welfare of other churches, even churches we've never met. This is why we send support to Tim Bird in Johannesburg, South Africa, to support the work there among churches in Zambia and South Africa, whom we may never meet on this side of glory, but with whom we rejoice in the greatness of God. This is why we pray for other congregations. I love the way Pastor Matt prayed this morning for congregations where the gospel light has actually gone out and prayed not for their condemnation, not for their destruction utterly, but pray for their revival, pray for the recovery of the gospel and the flourishing of those people once again in the truth of our Lord. This is Paul's attitude. It's one of love for the church universal, and it's the attitude that all Christians are meant to have. We are meant to struggle for the full assurance 
of Christian people everywhere. And the question becomes, how did Paul struggle for people he was never with? Look at Colossians 4. There Paul mentions around verse 15, or excuse me, verse 12, a man he's already mentioned before, Epaphras. Remember he tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, around there, that Epaphras is a, a faithful servant together with them that he ministers on behalf of the Colossians. And here he tells us in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, he's actually a Colossian. He does know the church there. A servant of Christ Jesus greets you, notice, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. What's the struggle? Verse 13, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Herapolis. I think Paul here, when he says, I struggle for you, is referring to prayer. That's how you pray for, that's how you struggle for people you've never seen. That's how you work for the full assurance of people that you've never seen. You bow your head and you intercede for them. You ask God on their behalf to grant them the assurance, the full assurance of faith in Christ. Anybody here struggle to pray? Anybody ever find themselves while in the act of praying, struggling? against distraction, sleepiness, the to-do list, or struggling in the prayer itself. You're longing for the salvation of family and friends, and to this point, you've seen no indication of any life. And so you press, and you struggle, and you plead, and you beat on the door of heaven. God be merciful. God act. I think this is what is happening with Paul. Together with Epaphras and all the churches there, they, they fight the battle on their knees. They seek the very best for the Colossians, not by traveling to Colossae by foot, but by traveling to heaven on knees. We can go a long way and get a lot done by bending our knees and bowing our heads. And so Paul struggles for them. But what does he struggle for? Notice in verse 2 that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul loved commas, didn't he? He'd just be stacking phrases on top of each other, doesn't he? And when you get to the end of the sentence, you'd be like, now what did he say? You know, which prepositional phrase was the central one, Right? What does all this mean? Well, I think he says it in different words. Again, in Colossians 4, verse 12, if you look back there again, he talks about Epaphras always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Why? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. He actually had just said it at the end of chapter 1 as well, verses 28 and 29. He says that he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. You see his goal as an apostle and a pastor? We can reduce it to two words, maturity and assurance. He puts it this way in Ephesians 4. He wants the church to grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. That's what he wants. That's what every good pastor wants for his church. That's what every good church wants for itself is to grow into the fullness of Christ and to be sure that they belong to Christ. And these phrases that he stacks up here, they're really quite beautiful. 
Notice there that all of this maturing and growing, he wants it to happen with the church's hearts being knit together in love. That's Paul's vision for the church, that we would be knit together in love. My mother used to knit. You know, some of you, like Stephanie, knit. You're world-class champion knitters. Knitting is an amazingly creative process. I mean, how do you take one long strand of yarn and make it into a sweater and gloves and a hat and whatever else you can imagine? Well, it's by hooking it on itself, twining it together, braiding it together, plaiting it together, binding it. And in the collection of bindings, you emerge with a whole garment, if you like. That's what love is. Love is this one singular strand that is meant to run through and to hook through the heart of every Christian in the church. And to make of every Christian more than what he or she would have been individually, but together to make us all sort of reach the fullness of the stature of Christ. Paul says, listen, I want you knit together your hearts by love. That's the thread. That's the cord. That's the unbreakable bond that you should be sewn into one tapestry, into one garment by love. He says, now, as that's happening, here are the other things I want for you. I want your hearts to be encouraged to reach for Christ. So I want your hearts to be encouraged, being knit together by love, to reach for the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. See, the aim of an encouraged Christian heart is full assurance in Christ. A loving church family helps every member of the family to strive for these riches. That is one of our goals together as a church. It ought to be, and we should be self-conscious about it. We are to help each other's hearts reach for assurance. And and the word there, reach, has in mind sort of accomplishing a goal, but it it strikes me as an interesting word there. I I almost imagine the heart as having little arms and hands. That the heart kind of reaches out for Christ. It gets his hands on Christ. And if you know, like I know, the heart is always reaching for something, ain't it? Sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes godly, sometimes ungodly. But it's the nature of the heart to reach. This is why the Bible uses the word like covetousness to describe that reaching which is wrong, reaching after things that don't belong to you, reaching after things that you shouldn't have. But it's using the word here, assurance, to talk about the best kind of reaching from the heart. It is the reaching for Christ as your all. It is the reaching for Christ, proclaiming in song and in statement, Christ is enough for me. I desire to be satisfied in him. I desire to be latched on to him. I desire to clutch him and to hold him because that's the nature of the heart. When it reaches something, it doesn't easily let go, does it? And so he says, now, I want you encouraged to reach for Christ, for in Christ is your assurance. So what's your heart reaching for this morning? What's your heart longing for? I worry for people who say they trust their hearts or justify their longings with the heart wants what it wants. It surely does, but it doesn't mean it should have what it wants. Everyone who's ever spent any time with children knows that. 
children want what they want. But isn't it the essence of good parenting to decide what is good for a child to have and what is not? To give what is good and to deny what is bad? And so we should treat our hearts. We should deny our hearts everything that is contrary to Christ, and we should give our hearts everything that is conducive to Christ. There's nothing more essential in the Christian life than that we should master our hearts, that we should study them and be careful in our study because our hearts are deceptive and not to be trusted. We're not to rest our hopes finally on what our hearts want, but on who Christ is. The assurance, the certainty, the confidence comes not from the strength of our hearts, it comes from the strength of our Savior. It comes from what He has done for us. It's in Him that all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hidden. Beloved, you know, maybe you've not thought about this before, but if you struggle being confident that you're a Christian, it's not an uncommon struggle. But God would desire you to come to a place of full assurance, of full confidence. Many a great saint has had to fight to that place. And many books of the Bible are written to help us in that. So even the letter of 1 John, John concludes that letter, chapter 5, verse 13, saying in part, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is something Christ actually wants you to know. He has purposes in the suffering and the struggle and the doubt. But don't place your faith in your doubt. Continue to believe in Christ. Continue to hope in him. Continue to press for what's described here as the riches of full assurance. This is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Part of what he means there is we should pursue full assurance that we really are Christ. And notice in the text there, this full assurance comes from understanding and knowledge. To know something is to be familiar with it, aware of it. Someone with understanding not only knows the fact that something exists, but they know kind of how it works. They have insight into it. It's one thing to say, I know that there are cars. That's knowledge. It's another thing to say, I can repair one. That's understanding. And just to be clear, I can't. So don't call Pastor T, but you can call my wife, but I don't know nothing about it. And so Paul says, now this, this assurance grows up out of understanding and knowledge, that we know some facts and we understand how they work. And in particular, this understanding and knowledge is of God's mystery, which he tells us is Christ. As we saw last week, when Paul uses that term mystery, he is referring most often to the gospel, something that was hidden in the Old Testament that has been revealed in the New Testament. God had promised a way of salvation to his old covenant people, but it was shrouded in in partial revelation. And then Christ comes, and all that God had promised in his old covenant is now revealed. It It is declared, it is open to the whole world. This is how I was going to save you, God says, in the cross of my son, in the crushing of him for sin and in the resurrection of my son three days later for the justification of all who would believe. That's the mystery. 
That's the riddle that's solved. How God takes sinners whose sin he hates and makes them saints who enjoy his love. It's by bringing them through the cross, through faith in what Jesus has done as a sacrifice for our sins to pay the penalty for our sins. In faith in what Jesus has done in obeying God perfectly to satisfy the righteous requirements of God's law. Those requirements we had long ago forsaken and failed. So when Christ obeys God and when Christ dies in our place, he's doing everything for us to turn away God's anger and to provide for us God's righteousness. And when God raises him from the grave three days later, he's saying, I accept his sacrifice. He's saying in so many words again, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And that news comes to us. And those who have understanding of God's grace, they hear it, they accept it, they believe it, and they are saved from the wrath of God to come and saved to enjoy the love of God forever. This is the mystery in Christ. And this is the offer to everyone who would acknowledge their sins and be forgiven of them by coming to Christ in faith. If you want to know more about that, let me encourage you not to stop with the knowledge of the facts until you have a deep understanding of the gospel and the cross and your need for it. Talk with us today before you leave. We've got emails and phone numbers on the bulletin. Call us. We would like nothing more than to sit with you and help you understand God's love for you through Jesus Christ, his son. Amen? Because this is where we find assurance. This is where we find wisdom. Notice there, it is in Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I love that phrase. This is the text from which we get the title of this sermon series, Our Treasures in Christ. And we've been trying with each sermon to sort of unpack a different list of treasures, if you will. And here, the treasure is wisdom and knowledge. How many of you have ever needed wisdom? Amen. If you didn't raise your hand, you ain't lived long enough or you sleep or something. We all need wisdom. And going back to those questions in the introduction, where do we find it? Oh, beloved, you can find a lot of people telling you what's wise and where to go and how to get wisdom. The streets have his own code of wisdom. Schools teach what they think is wise. There are whole systems of philosophy that want to convince you of its, its wisdom. And here's what you need to know. There's several things we need to know. Here's one of the things you need to know. The Bible draws a distinction between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 30 is a whole section on that very distinction. And it says things like this. To the world, the cross is foolishness. But to us, it is wisdom from God. To the world, the cross is weak and powerless. But to us, it is the very power of God, not only unto salvation, but to confuse, to confound the worldly wise. Listen, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God are two categorically different things. They cannot be reconciled. They cannot be joined together. And this is why worldliness is such a problem. This is why living according to the wisdom of the world is such a problem. And in a sense, what Paul will do in Colossians chapter 2 is argue that Jesus is our philosophy, that the cross is our philosophy, 
that the cross is our wisdom and the way to the treasures that are hidden in Christ is by going to Christ. Now, I asked a moment ago how many of us have ever needed wisdom, and most of us were honest and raised our hands. Let me ask you a second question. How many of you ever prayed for wisdom? Okay, good. That's two good steps, to acknowledge that we need wisdom and to pray for wisdom. Now, let me ask you a third question. What did you do after you prayed for wisdom? Most people kind of stop there. Most people kind of go, I asked for wisdom, and then they wait for the clouds to part. You know, I'm looking for some sky writing, or, or I asked for wisdom, and I kept asking for wisdom, and then I felt a peace about things. Let me encourage you not to do that. If Colossians 2, 3 is true, and it is, the next step after acknowledging wisdom, for, need for wisdom, asking for wisdom, is actually to go deep into Christ where the wisdom is hidden. It is to pour ourselves into the Scripture. It is to ransack the Bible. I, I, love, the way, I love the way this thing uh, works, this text works, and I think Matt's analogy about the American pickers is excellent because it, it's suggesting to us that you can't find wisdom casually. You don't just sort of whistle down the street one day and you just step into a pile of wisdom. That's not how that happens. That's something else, right? <laughs> what, what, you, what you must do, what you must do is search for it like a man searching for gold, like a man searching for treasures. Notice that word in verse 3, is hidden in Christ. It's, it's down in there deep. And, and it's down in there deep because several places in the Scripture, God tells us that he veils his wisdom to some people. He doesn't cast his pearls before swine. But if you seek God, you'll be rewarded. If you seek wisdom, you will find it. If you press into his word, he will open it to you. Wisdom is like a diamond inside of coal. You have to chip at the Bible, chip at the Bible, chip at the Bible until that coal cracks open and releases the treasure. Wisdom in life, is it requires that kind of pursuit, that kind of discipline where we keep digging into Christ until we hit pay dirt. And what is this wisdom? Well, the definition of wisdom basically is knowing how to live with skill. Knowing how to live with sound judgment and insight and skill. Wisdom takes knowledge and turns it into life. Wisdom takes the facts of life and the facts of Christ and the facts of the Christian faith and turns it into a life of decisions and actions that are sound and good and right before God. Wisdom is a, a habit of life, really. It's one, anybody can make a wise decision every once in a while. But to live wisely is a discipline of repeating good decisions. And the Bible is telling us if we would live that way, we must go deep into Christ. We must dig into the Lord, for that's where we find the riches of full assurance and the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see how this text goes from riches to treasures? Oh, beloved, there are a lot of pastors who want to convince you that the riches that God promises you is, can be counted in dollar bills and nickels and dimes. The riches and treasures of Christ is Christ himself. This is why you can say, if I have Christ, it's enough for me. All I have is Christ and all I need. 
But now let me meditate just for a second. The next two points are much quicker than this one. What are all the riches of full assurance? What is Paul speaking of here? What are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Let me give you 10 to start with. Real quickly. Real quickly. I promise. And then let me, let me invite you to use the rest of the Lord's day to see how much of this full assurance and its riches you can unpack. Here's number one. One riches, is that how you say it? One riches, or some of the riches of full assurance is being and experiencing forgiveness. Oh, it feels so good to know you're forgiven. It's so comforting and securing and stabilizing to know that all of your sins have been nailed to the cross and God is not angry anymore. He's taken them as far away as the east is from the west and he says, I remember them no more. Oh, that's riches. Number two, being and feeling righteous with God. You see, it's one thing, it's one thing to sort of know God has forgiven me. It's another thing to know I'm positively right in his sight. One has to do with the taking away of sins. The other has to do with the giving of Christ's righteousness. And, and so to know the, the freedom that, yes, I'm, I'm a sinner still, but I'm also justified. I, I am imperfect still, but, but God not only is not angry with me, but in Christ is approving of me. He has declared me righteous in his sight. Oh, the riches of righteousness. That gives assurance. Or number three, peace with God. <laughs> The warfare is over. The fight is over. My rebellion is over. I've come to God in faith. And now me and God, good. We're right with each other. We reconcile. There's no strife between us. I am on the Lord's side because he was on my side. In fact, he brought me across the line over to his side. He reached into the trash mat and he found me and he dusted me off and he made me his own. And, and now God and I are good. There's nothing like peace with God. Number four, I guess the two for joy and hope. That's part of the riches of assurance. When you are sure that you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you, that ought to give you hope for the future and joy unshakable, joy inexpressible and full of glory. You, you look out on the world and you can face the world and whatever the world sends your way because the Christ who has loved you is the Christ who is reigning and he is putting all things under his feet for the church. And, and so we have no reason like hope and every reason to expect confidently the goodness of the Lord and every reason to rejoice. This is part of what comes with assurance or number five, freedom. If you're sure you're Christ and Christ is yours, in the same way that you're sure that spouse loves you and you love him, doesn't that give you freedom? You get to be yourself See, brother, checking in. <laughs> you get to be yourself, and the knowledge of their acceptance allows you to put your hair down, let your stuff hang out. You, you get to do that with God. You can't do that with everybody sitting in here. You just get to be you. But all of your weaknesses and all of your wonders, and, and there is a freedom in that. 
No longer trying to earn his approval. This is, this is, beloved, this is the essence of freedom. We are not working for God's approval, but from it. He's already given it to us in Christ. Or, or number six, <laughs> no condemnation. God is not, at the day of judgment, going to pronounce a guilty verdict on anyone who believes in Christ and follows him as Lord. There is no condemnation. And that's Paul's conclusion in Romans 8.1. After in Romans chapter 7, he is struggling with this desire, these conflicting desires. The good I want to do, I do not do. The thing that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And he declares at the end of Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he resolves in Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how you answer your doubts. That's how you answer your struggles. No condemnation means no fear of judgment. Number seven. Number eight, the ongoing enjoyment of God's love. We, we heard this in the assurance of pardon. Beloved, let this ring in your heart. If you are Christ, nothing will separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Whatever that thing is that threatens you and causes you to think that somehow you forfeit God's love, it lies if you are in Christ. You may be fully assured that God has loved you so thoroughly that no one will pluck you out of his hand and no one will turn his heart against you because we are in Christ. Number nine, a place in God's kingdom. Oh, to think all day about heaven and glory. Number 10, the gift of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I well recognize just from my own life that holding all these treasures together is difficult. We forget. And yet God has sent us a guarantee. He sent us a deposit. He sent us one to keep us until the day of redemption. He has come himself, God the Holy Spirit, to seal us until the day of redemption and to provide for us by his spirit all that we need for life and godliness. And beloved, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what God offers you in Christ, not merely forgiveness. He's not offering you a religious set of routine. He's offering you riches and treasures that you will be digging into for all of eternity for your delight and your joy and the glory of your soul. If God offers you riches, take it. Take it. Reach for Christ for full assurance. Number two, remain with Christ as your protection. That's what we see in verses four and five. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am present in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. In other words, Paul tells us what he tells us in verses one to three in order to protect us from chasing fool's gold. He's trying to keep us in the truth of Christ and the gospel so that we don't go after sort of weak treasures, quote-unquote, somewhere else. There were those in Colossae who were trying to tell the Colossian Christians that they needed Jesus, yes, but they needed some other things too in order to have the fullness that, that God really wants them to have. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. All the fullness that you need, you have in Jesus right? And don't be swayed. You know what it is to be deluded, don't you? 
is to think that you can compete with me on the basketball court. <laughs> Y'all tell Pastor Jeremy, he gone this week. Y'all go tell him. <laughs> it, it is to delude someone means to deceive them, to fool them, to put some false idea in their minds in order to have them live by it. And, and this is what Paul says. And now, the problem is some delusions sound plausible. They sound good, right? Some delusions have a ring of truth. Listen, the best deceptions are actually built on the truth. They take truth, add a little bit, take a little bit away, and then the whole thing is falsified. Now, if an argument idea seems plausible, and seems like it can be true, what do we need to, in order to not be deceived? You know, a lot of times, we end up in ridiculous situations because something sounded good, don't we? I can hear, girl, he sounds so good on the phone. How many businessmen said the the deal just seemed so good? It sounded so good. Well, that salesman sounded good when he was selling you that car, that used car. Told you that a grandmother drove it only to the grocery store. It's it's a 20-year-old car, but it's only got 2,000 miles on it. It's because it tripped over. It's got a million and 2,000 miles on it, right? If we would only stop making life decisions using sounds good to me as a criteria and comparing everything to what we have in Christ, then we would be kept from a whole bunch of foolishness and error. We would not be deluded by false teachers. We would live lives of rich wisdom and understanding. So we have to protect the treasures that we have. That's the problem with treasures. Other people want to take them. How do we protect them? Verse 5 suggests two things. Paul says he rejoices to see their good order and that they, their firmness in the faith. Now, by see there, he's referring not to what he's seen with his own eyes, but with the report that's come from Epaphras. He's heard about them. Epaphras has given them a report. And the thing that rejoiced the apostles' heart about the Colossians is those two things, good order and the firmness of your faith. These two things in this context are two things that protect the Colossian Christians from these plausible but delusional arguments. Good order is another term for disciple or discipline. Their lives as a church and as individual Christians were well-structured. They are well-ordered. They live according to the priorities and principles of God's Word and the Christian faith, and their lives match those priorities. When they meet as a church, there's no confusion among them. Their services were decent and in order. They are the opposite of the Corinthian churches. You remember the Corinthian churches were, man, they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They were leaving people out. They were suing each other and Sexual immorality was rampant in the church and even of a kind that that non-believers didn't do. And Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, and he has to tell them, listen, God is not a God of confusion. And then he says in verse 40 of that chapter, all things must be done in decency and in order. The Colossians understood that. Again, which is another way of saying that they were disciples. Disciple and discipline, they, they share the same 
root idea or root word, if we are Christian disciples, then our lives then should be in good order under the Lord's control. It's ordering our lives under Jesus' control, defined in his word, that protects us from plausible arguments that would fool us into something other than Christ. So, beloved, if you are thinking of joining this church or joining any church or thinking about your church home, never treat what churches do as merely tradition. You shouldn't justify a practice in the church by saying, that's how we do it. That may be true, maybe how you do it, and it may be useful saying that for understanding something about that church, but it's not enough for protecting the church from error. In fact, that's how a lot of error creeps in, through traditionalism. We protect our riches in Christ by ordering ourselves individually and collectively according to God's word. And secondly, we protect that treasure of full assurance and wisdom in Christ by standing firm in the faith. If you listen to some professing Christian teachers and leaders, they would have you believe that being sure and confident and firm in your faith and beliefs amounts to arrogance and pride. They would have you believe that a fluid or flexible or squishy faith is the same as humility. But that's not the Bible's teaching, beloved. Nowhere in the Bible are Christians called to squishiness as a form of humility. Everywhere in the Bible, Christians are called to humility, but it's a humility that is rooted in and caused by the truth. The truth about who we are and the truth about God and Christ, his son. Everywhere the Bible calls us to stand on the rock. It calls us to have an unwavering faith. The Bible condemns a a forked tongue. The Bible lashes out against hypocrisy. Uh, The Bible tells us that a man who is double-minded is unstable in all of his ways. In all these ways and many others, the Bible stands over and against squishiness and calls us to be solid and firm. I love the way G.K. Chesson put it. The purpose of having an open mind, like like having an open mouth, is to close it on something solid. The point of having an open mind of inquiry isn't to lose yourself in inquiry. It is to discover the truth and then close your mind on the truth. And so we, if we are firm in faith, we protect ourselves from those unstable, unlasting, squishy, and liquid forms of Christianity, which end up being no form of Christianity at all. Because the Colossians stood firm in their faith in the truth about Jesus, they were protected. You see, a firm stand in the faith is like getting shots to protect against the flu. It inoculates us from error and danger and sickness. So let's apply this, verses 4 and 5, with three questions. Number one, how ordered is your life? How ordered is your life in view of God's word? Number two, how firm is your faith? How firm is your faith? And number three, if you lack order and firmness, how deeply are you digging into Christ? How deeply are you digging into the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ? We have a treasure. We must protect it.
it's order and firmness that keep us in that treasure. Which brings us to our third point. We are then to walk in Christ as our Lord. So let's say you've reached for Christ with all your heart and you've set up a good defense with order and firm faith. What do you do now? Well, that's what the Bible teaches us in verses 6 and 7. Once we've reached for Christ and once we've taken our stand in him, then we have to learn to walk in him. You see that first phrase there uh, in verse 6, therefore, Paul has now given us his application, his conclusion. Uh, he says, therefore, we are to now walk in Christ just as we have received him as Lord, so now we are to walk in him. As you know, a person's walk refers to the entire direction and path of their life. It refers to all of their desires and thoughts and actions. So to walk in Christ is to desire for yourself what Jesus desires for you. To walk in Christ is to um, speak the way Christ would have you speak. To walk in Christ is to think Jesus' thoughts after him. And to walk in Christ is to do what Christ would have you do. Walking in Christ is acting the way Jesus would have us act, taking very seriously that he is our Lord, just as you have received him as Lord. On today's Christianity, we seem to place all the emphasis on receiving Christ. We want to know if a person has ever professed faith. We want to know if they have ever accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And those are good things to know. We need to start there. We need to know those things. But we tend to forget that receiving Christ is only the beginning of the Christian life. It is not the end of the Christian life. And so Paul stresses their walk. He says, it's great that you've received Jesus as Lord. Now show me. That, that means you have to walk a certain way. You have to conduct yourself a certain way before him as Lord. And some time ago, evangelical Christianity was overrun with the slogan, what would Jesus do? WWJD, anybody old enough to remember that? Is that still around? A lot of Christians were fired up to think about how they live and to think about how they live in light of what Jesus would do and how Jesus lived. But you know, I was surprised to see a lot of Christians mocking that, especially those who regard themselves as pretty sound theologically, you know, the super theological, the ones who can always out, who can Jesus juke you with theology, right? And so they would approach these well-meaning, unsuspecting Christians, excited about living like Jesus, and go, you can't live like Jesus. Only Jesus could atone for your sins. Only Jesus could turn away God's wrath. It's like, well, duh. <laughs> I'm on to the next question. I'm not talking about justification. I'm talking about sanctification, right? right? So I actually think that little phrase and that little slogan is fitting for verses 6 and 7. What would Jesus do as a clue as to what we should do, how we should live? The guiding principle of our lives as we're Christians is I want to do what Jesus says I should do. Our lives are no longer our own. They have been purchased with a price. They belong to Christ. And so we should walk in him. Now the rest of verses 6 and 7 really is Paul again mixing metaphors. I, I am convinced that if Paul were alive today, he'd be a Christian hip-hop artist. Because that brother be mixing metaphors and stuff just like, he'd just be rolling them out, right? So he starts with walking. Now, now he comes to two other metaphors, rooted and built up in him. 
Uh, you guys will know where rooted comes from. It comes from agriculture, right? Uh, some of you are gardeners and, and things of that sort. You know that a plant can't grow unless it has a good root system. And a plant can't have a good root system unless it's rooted in good soil. It may take root in bad soil, but it will never be a healthy plant, right? Paul says, now listen, the soil for the Christian life is Christ. You must be rooted in him. Then he switches metaphors and he says you must be built up in him. Now he's over into the area of construction and architecture. Some of you work in the building trades. You're carpenters and electricians and so on. And Paul says, now, no, not only should you be rooted in him, but if I could switch the metaphor on you for a second, he needs to be your foundation. You need to be built up on that foundation. And you know buildings don't stand unless they have a solid foundation. If you dig deep enough and pour level enough, you can raise up skyscrapers on a foundation. And that's what Paul has in mind, our being rooted and our being grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in that, in that sort of metaphor building again. He says, established in the faith. Established in the faith. I love that phrase. It suggests it's permanence, don't it? Think of all the buildings you've seen or all the organizations you've seen that somewhere on their letterhead or on the capstone of the building will say, established in 1951. They've established that thing. They've stood it up. It's meant to test, stand the test of time. And so it is with Christians in our faith. We are meant to be established in the faith, to stand, withstand the test of time, to be enduring until Christ comes. And listen, but we, we need to put these things together. A person who knows a lot of theology but does not know how to live as a Christian is not established in the faith. A person who knows how to live well, in general, but does not know the theology beneath it, beneath it, is not established in the faith either. The first one will falsify their theology by bad living. The second one will have their living corrupted by false theology eventually. They'll be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Now, what the Bible calls us to is, yes, sound theology and applied living. Those two things together is what constitutes established in the faith. We want to be those people who know the truth, but also live the truth. So we must have them both. That, beloved, is what the Christian religion is. The truth about God, theology, and the ways of God, ethics, joined together. Lose one you lose the house. And then notice here, Paul says, I want you to walk this way just as you were taught. Just as you were taught. This verse, that phrase gives me my job security. <laughs> Learning to walk takes a lot of teaching and effort. Again, we notice if we have children, don't we, or nieces and nephews, toddlers, first learning to walk. They first got to get confidence in their legs, don't they? That they can stand on those things. Oh, this is what they're for, you know? It's like, okay. And they learn to, learn to sort of bounce a little bit, you know? Right? And then, and then they learn to cruise. That's what we call it, right? They grab the coffee table, and, and they learn to sort of move down the coffee table, right? Or, or you do the puppet walk with them. They hold your fingers, you know, and you, you walk them. There's a, there's a lot of modeling and training and learning to walk. And eventually, they take a step. And they're not really sure. So they sit down. <laughs> right? 
And you, all the while, you are applauding them. No, 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 that's so great. That's so great. And, and you get them back up again. They take a step, take two, and then they face plant, right? And he, but, but you don't call it face plant. He's like, oh, he walking. Like, not really. You know, not really. You know, I'm not sure he's that gifted yet. But you, you keep working with him, right? You keep working with him until finally he or she starts to really walk. And when they can really walk, they get interested in running, don't they? Yeah. And then parenting just changes altogether. You know, just, then you got to work, right? That's what it is in the, in, the, in the spiritual life. No one who comes to Christ knows how to walk as Christ. No, there's a whole lot of hand-holding and a whole lot of teaching that must be done and a whole lot of practicing and, beloved, a whole lot of cheering. It's got to be a whole lot of applauding those feeble first steps. And there's got to be a whole lot of assistance helping people get up when they fall. And there's got, a whole, there's got to be a whole lot of modeling. It's got to be taking the hands, follow me as I follow Christ. As people learn to grow up into Christ and walk as Christians. Now, here's the great tragedy in the Christian church. Most Christians have never had anyone teach them how to follow Christ. I, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I know many of us have been blessed to have great mentors. But many others of us, we've been, we've been trying to figure it out without systematic, careful instruction and application of God's word. And here's my concern. You know what can happen? You can be faking it and figuring it out for so long that eventually you grow a kind of independent spirit where you don't want anybody to teach you. And when people kind of come along and say, yo, you're kind of tilting right here, then you get resentful. And you don't want to receive correction or admonishment or instruction. There's a kind of pride that grows up with that. Listen, beloved, you cannot fake it till you make it. You will only be faking it till the end. And the God who sees all and knows all is not deceived. He is not fooled. In the end, the only person who may be deceived is us if we're faking the funk. No, 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 beloved. Our calling is to lay down because of the gospel, because Christ has already died for our sins and knows that we are sinners, our calling is to lay down all the pretending. <laughs> Here I am, Lord, a sinner. <laughs> Have mercy on me. I've been living my whole life going the wrong way. And then you died for me to atone for my sins, and God raised you from the grave to give me new life, and now I've got this new life. I don't know what to do with it. I've never lived this new life. It, that's why it's called new. It's new to me too. I need a little help. And that's what the church is. That's what the family is. In the same way that parents and family members help little children learn to walk, that's what we're going to be doing as a church is helping each other learn to walk in Christ, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. If we teach it just as it was taught, this has to be taught, beloved. And we have to teach it to each other. And we have to receive it from each other. We don't want churchianity. We want Christianity. And Christianity is breaking the molds of traditionalism and doing Sunday morning only church to do a new thing, which really is the original thing of being a family that lives together, walks together, talks together, shares together, and grows together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means we got to know each other. And we got to be with each other. And we can't have any pretensions with each other. And we have to receive teaching from each other. 
This is what God has called us to. This is his vision for the church. And we should land a plane where verse 7 lands the plane. And all of this walking and growing up and building up and teaching. Notice what he says is also taught. Abounding in thanksgiving. Now thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. No, not just because of the food and the family and the football. Because it's that one day, in the, even in the secular calendar of our country, where you set aside a day to intentionally give God thanks. And we're in the Cayman Islands, man, they had three Thanksgivings. That's how I got in the shape that I'm in. <laughs> we had the Canadian Thanksgiving, which came after the American Thanksgiving, like all the Canadian stuff comes out to make, right? So we had the American Thanksgiving, and then Caymanians, is not to be left out. They decided they wanted to move it to have their own Thanksgiving. Man, so I had turkey, and I had Canadian bacon, and I had jerk chicken. It was just a nice season for about a month, right? But what I love about this is not the day, but the grace, the discipline of learning to sort of press out distraction and learning to recognize God's goodness and to express gratitude to him. And part of what Paul is saying in this trail of logic from verse 1 down to verse 7 is, in light of what you have in Christ... (laughs) There's nothing for you to do but to abound in thanksgiving. If you know the fullness of the riches of assurance in Christ, if you have all the once hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ, that should create a flood in your heart so that you just sort of erupt into thanksgiving. That's what abounding means. It means to overflow. Think of a river that gets too much water in it. And the water eclipses the bank of the river and flows into the city and other places and you have floods. The Christian heart is meant to be flooding with thanks. It's meant to be flooding with thanksgiving. It's meant to be overflowing the the bounds of our hearts. And beloved, truthfully, our hearts are small containers and God's goodness is so great, we should always be overflowing. We should always be abounding. We ought to be the happiest people on the planet. We ought to be the people who are always glad before God because he knows what he's done for us. We know what he's done for us in Christ. Don't mean we won't have no off days, but give thanks anyhow. Don't mean we don't see hard things. We, we do. We suffer and we bleed and we have loved ones that die. And one day we will too. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We rejoice and we give God thanks because he has done great things for us. The Christian life is discovering that treasure, walking with it, and effusing, overflowing in thanks for it. That's God's call for our life, and that's God's call for all of you who are not yet Christians, that you would come into this life of richness and that you would discover a life of thanksgiving because you're constantly aware of how much God has done for you in Christ. It's a good life. It's the best life. It can be your life if you trust in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, if we have a difficult time being thankful, the problem is not with you. It's with our vision and our hearts. 
we have either not seen how much you have done for us in Christ, or we have not treasured it and held on to it. And so our visions of your goodness and your glory become small and tiny. And our awareness of weaknesses and problems and troubles grow large and overwhelming. And so we ask that you would fix our sight and fix our hearts, that we would focus on Christ, your Son, our Savior, and all that we have in him. For in him is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. In him is mercy and compassion. In him is redemption and salvation. In him is an escape from judgment. In him is the promise and the security of heaven itself. Let that be more than words. Let it come down into our hearts and let it overflow in us. And let us rejoice in the joy of this salvation. Oh Lord, we pray, teach every heart to give thanks as you give every heart a loving look to Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name.